Hello and welcome to Top Landing Gear Full Flaps and to the full-length version of our visit to historic Croydon Aerodrome, London's airport at the birth of commercial aviation in the 1920s, right up until 1959, when that role passed to what is now London Heathrow. We're incredibly fortunate that the main terminal building and control tower at Croydon have been preserved and with it a major chapter in aviation history. No one knows more about its history than our guide for the day, Ian Walker, former Chair of Trustees of the historic Croydon Airport Trust, now an A380 captain with BA. And while you're listening, you might like to visit historiccroydonairport.org.uk where you'll be able to see much of what we're talking about here. This is Top Landing Gear. We've stepped back in time. We're at Croydon Aerodrome. In fact, we're now with Ian Walker from the Croydon Historic Airport Trust. Almost very like close, that. yeah. <laughs> Historic Croydon Airport Trust. <laughs> HCAT. HCAT. Oh, okay, HCAT. <laughs> Ian, it's, it's so exciting to be here. This has been in our plans for so many years. A historic building in front of us. Just tell us what we're looking at here. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for coming on. It's great to see you all. Um, so what, what we're standing in front of at the moment, we're standing in front of the, the predecessor airport to London Heathrow. Uh, the terminal building we're seeing here opened in 1928. Uh, this place became London's airport in 1920. Um, and it was Britain's international airport. This was the designated place that you would fly from. Uh, if you wanted to travel uh, anywhere in the world, just as air travel started. So very, very important building. And also the building itself was a real step change uh, in airport terminal design. Really, it was the first time that we had a, first, uh, a purpose-built air, airport terminal put together to serve uh, air traffic and air passengers. Yeah, so it contained everything that you needed everything to run an needed, airport yeah. inside. This is, you know, you, we have to sort of go back to the time. Air travel is, is it's so new. It only started in 1919. Mm. Uh, so there's no real plan of what it's going to look like or something to build on a model. They are actually developing it as it goes along. Mm. So um, the first airports that existed, and there weren't many of them, really, they were just repurposed World War One airfields. So whatever buildings they had, they just designated those as, uh, a check-in, uh, a check-in desk for one airline or another airline, mail, cargo, uh, customs, car, uh, administration, and all the other functions that you had. But this is the first time they looked at all those functions and put it together in one building, so it worked really well, and it flowed as well. Uh, and it's split into two halves. So, simple, simple terms, you've got inbound and outbound. That's yeah. the two things that happen at an airport. Yeah. So, it was, it was symmetrical in the way it operated. But this is the first time that's happened. Um, and it had some great, great design features that made it really super efficient at the time. 
So the, the term terminal, as in an airport terminal, as we now know, yeah. it came from the, the terminal building. Is this the well? Well, yeah. I mean, the t- term the term is in use for for railway terminals. Yeah, so it, it was very much that. You know, this this was an air terminal. Yeah. Um, the actual title of it when they opened the building was Airport of London. But of course, now we just say airport. Yeah. But at the time, that was very too much two separate words. <laughs> it was airport because it was. Uh, an, in, an entry into a country. And some things that were different as well that uh, the general population getting used to is that a port was normally on the coast. Yeah. And, of course, this is actually inland <laughs> as well. So this is a whole new world that, you know, people are amazed to see uh, airliners and people coming in from another country right into the centre, um, you know, of, of, a, of a city. So it's, it's really quite a big change as well. And just to describe the look of the building, I mean, we've just said how beautiful it is. It, it is of its time, isn't it? Nineteen twenties, sort of Art Deco. Yes, it is. It's it's sort of pre Art Deco. It's mm. just just before that. It's uh, sort of neoclassical. Mm. It, it's really almost getting to the latter stages of uh, neoclassical as well. It was sort of known as uh, restrained classical. Um, so really, you're trying to get those modernist features. Yeah. It's sort of stripped down. It's not quite as ornate as maybe a classical building. Neoclassical is already stripping that down. But you're getting those those functions and features there. But also, you're starting to see some of the changes as well towards Art Deco. So yeah. you're starting. It's a bit to like the... walking into a Hercule Poirot film. Yeah, isn't absolutely. It? This is <laughs> it, it is very much of that. You know, it is of that era. So. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a it's a 1920s building, so right at the end of the 1920s. So designed by the Air Ministry, uh, architects, in-house architects, they designed it all. Um, and that was all completed around about 1926, 1927. Uh, it took about 18 months to build. It's built of a steel frame, concrete blocks, 50,000 concrete blocks were <laughs> precast. Um, uh, over the years, it's been extended. Um, and um, when it opened, it was... You know, it's the world's biggest airport, so it was. You know, it was really quite quite a thing at the time. It attracted thousands of people as well, just as a as a place to come and visit as well. It was a really big tourist attraction, uh, so much so that they were overwhelmed with the amount of people that were coming down here. They had to start employing full time tour guides to actually really? take people around, and they're yeah. still doing it. <laughs> there you are. Any, yeah, I just don't get paid, unfortunately. <laughs> I do it for the love. Oh. So, uh, <laughs> and we're, we're, you might be able to hear the pearly way behind yeah. us but what a great view they have as they drive past this because we're sheltering underneath this beautiful de Havilland dove which is the kind of yeah well it's your well, well this is the four engine dove so this oh, is sorry, the heron. heron I can't believe I got that wrong <laughs> the heron we can do that it's bit the, again yeah <laughs> we are going to do it I can't believe that because because James called it a dove and I knew it was a heron because the first aircraft I ever flew in was a pleasure flight the big and hill yeah. about 1965 in a heron. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Roy, if you keep that in, I'll kill you. No, he's not going to buzz up. He's staying now. Yeah. Oh, look, yeah. and we're standing beneath a heron. <laughs> Beautiful to Havilland heron. Yeah, this was the uh, this this heron here. Uh, the, re- the reason we have it here is the gate guardian is that the airport closed in 1959. So that's when it, it ceased operations and that was the end of the era. Uh, and the last flight out was by Morton Air Services to Rotterdam um, on the, the Havilland Heron here. Uh, and that was on the 30th of September 1959. Uh, and the uh, pilot that controls, the captain, is a, a, a chap called Geoffrey Last. So he operated the last flight Very out. So, yeah, absolutely. So, and that was, that was the last commercial service. So, oh. 
that, that's right here, really. And this was really about the biggest thing you could get in here. It was a grass airfield, so you never had tarmac runways. So it was, it was limited, really, on what it could handle then. So, Because all the pictures and film that we see now, um, looking back to the early days of Croydon, when it was in its, you know, at its peak... Yeah. These wonderful old aircraft, like the Handley Page HP 42, right. which I just love. I don't suppose yeah. they any exist anymore. No, they? They, they only ever built eight. Um, when uh, when Imperial Airways were ordering aircraft, they generally did it in eights. So everything <laughs> was built in eights. Um, which, of course, if you're a manufacturer, it makes it very, very difficult to make any money. Yeah. So uh, because it's such a limited run. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the some of the more successful airliners were things like the the Havilland uh, Dragon or Rapide because they were sort of smaller twin-engine aircraft, um, didn't carry as many passengers. But actually, they actually built a lot of those. There's around about 700 of those built. But, exactly. But the HP-42s, all those pre-Second World War aircraft, the big airliners, none of them survived the war. Um, I mean, one with HP-42, is just starting to get fatigue and corrosion with it internally. So they were pressed into serve in the Second World War. Some got damaged, um, and then some just were... Deteriorating, so got scraps and that What's was that. What's a shame? Because well, the cabins look beautiful, didn't they're they? And, fantastic. And they had they, a great safety record. Didn't they, they were, yeah. They were. They all the time they were in commercial service with Imperial. Uh, they didn't have any major accidents at all, so sort of no no deaths or injuries. Mm. Um, probably because they were super slow, did about ninety miles an hour, so you didn't hit anything fast. <laughs> so um, it was all it was all you can still crash with that. Yeah, thing, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so everything happened in slow time, so you weren't going anywhere fast, which is why they're so luxurious because you're in the yeah. aeroplane for a long time. Yeah. Um, but they, yeah, they were a great aeroplane, so and they're very iconic. I mean, re- really the. The HP-42 was the ultimate development of the sort of the biplane airliner. R- r- that was it, really. They're the sort of biggest biplane airliner built, sort of a 130-foot wingspan. And after that, into the 30s, you're starting to see the monoplanes coming, really. And you're, you're then getting that, that change in design. You're getting sort of an airliner that we, we recognise yeah, sort of today, really, something that's a bit more aerodynamic, goes a little bit faster, and starts having um, some more sophisticated um, equipment on it, like retractable undercarriage, um, and moves like that. But do you want to have a quick run round or sort of talk about the building very quickly? Yeah, right. Or do you want to go in? Yeah, so well, no, no, um, so here we are, main entrance. So this is where the passengers arrive. Um, the, way, the way your ticketing worked at the time with Imperial Airways, we only had one airline at the time, is that your ticket would actually start at um, the Victoria Hotel up in London. They bring you down here and drop you off. Or you might have your own... Um, chap your chauffeur drop you off because yeah. people were very wealthy we at the time yeah, yeah, yeah. so generally actually there wasn't much <laughs> car parking or anything so you know that's that's how your ticketing worked so um the building's actually i was sort of saying it's symmetrical it's really it's split into two halves so the, the, the wing we can see on the right sort of um that is the where goods would come in so they come in off the purdy way they back up into the doorways and we'll see more of those uh, as we go around the side in a minute uh, the goods get unloaded, bonded stores, and then they get manhandled onto an aircraft. And it's all manual handling, so you didn't have, you know, baggage belts, etc. You know, it was really, it was chaps just throwing, throwing bags around <laughs> and cargo and loading it up by hand. And then conversely, when the aircraft arrived, they get unloaded, and then they go into the wing on that side, which is the bonded stores on that side, um, and then they get all dealt with and then loaded up into vehicles, and then they come out and drive off 
off into the Purley Way. And the Purley Way here, actually, it was one of the first bypasses built in the UK. So that was actually opened in 1925 uh, because Croydon had quite heavy traffic even then. <laughs> so nothing's changed. But here we are, um, sort of 100 years later. But that's, that's the reason uh, the road was put in there, one of the early bypasses. Um, next door to the, um, the terminal here is where we've got the Aerodrome Hotel. That was built at the, first, uh, at the same time as the, this terminal was built in 1928. It's been extended over the years. That's one of the world's first purpose-built airport hotels as well. And that's where Amy Johnson stayed as well on the eve of oh. her record-breaking flight. And she had complained about the noise on the pearly way, so she couldn't, <laughs> she couldn't get any sleep. I've so, stayed uh, in that hotel, yeah, and I, I, yes. I know what she means. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You have great empathy with her. Uh, but <laughs> we're, 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 Sorry. No, and I was just going to say, presumably all that stuff, you know, the bonded warehousing stuff yep. and the, uh, all the passport control stuff would have been new to the world of aviation yeah would, yeah and it would it would it would, it would it, yes it did and it, it um this became um london's airport it was known as london terminal aerodrome originally in 1920 so we had a very much so i suppose a temporary airfield at hounslow heath um and the first scheduled commercial flight was 25th of august 1919 um but that airfield was owned by uh cavalry and they wanted their airfield back so everything had to move out and they came down to croydon which also was a, a world one World War One airfield, but much, much bigger. Um, but yes, uh, something that uh, you needed was was customs facilities. But that was actually all run from the Port of London, so that's where the customs officers came from. Right. Um, so was Croydon at the time considered sort of part of London, or was it an outlying? That's a really good question. I don't know the answer. Okay, I'll, 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 so, I'll take that. <laughs> so, no, in as much as that. Um, Croydon's one of these ones. It's in the London Borough of Croydon now, so yes. I'm not sure. It may it may well have been considered part of Greater London. Yeah. I, I I don't really know uh, so on that one. A friend of mine works. For, she used to work for Chanel. Oh, okay. And Chanel's headquarters are in Croydon. Yeah, they're literally just down the road. Oh, and they moved their headquarters to Croydon in the late twenties because they yeah. thought, well, this is going to be the, the, the centre yeah. of aviation where everyone's going to come and go. Um, and that's why Chanel are here. Yeah, there is. And they've got a fabulous Art Deco building yeah. um, just around the corner, literally about half a mile away, yeah. that got bombed in the Second World War. Oh, really? Yeah, so uh, there was one of the, you know, the Battle of Britain. There was a big bombing raid um, on Croydon on the 15th of August, 1940. Um, airfield was hit, but a load of the factories and the Chanel factory got hit as well there. So anyway, we're backtrack a little <laughs> bit here. So uh, what we're looking at here, so originally the building was just two storeys. You've got these um, sort of big mock columns, spandrel panels between the windows give the idea that it's all just one open space inside but it's not, it's actually two storeys um, they originally would have been um, uh, steel framed windows as well um, like Crittle windows, they're not made by Crittle but it was that design, they're actually made by a company up in Wolverhampton as well you can see they sort of got this margin around the window as well, which yeah. is sort of getting towards sort of Art Deco styling but it's pre-Art Deco but you're starting to see those sort of features come in, so it's sort of modernist in design and styling. But as we walk round the side, we can actually sort of see how this sort of um, cargo wing would work. Uh, the building's been extended over the years. Um, so originally, the building would have stopped just about where that column is there so about three bays in if you look through the window you can probably see some railings of the staircase there yeah. so originally that was the end of the building and it, it went back that way so uh, it got extended um, forwards uh, and upwards um, so during the second world war but only half the roof got extended um, so 
that's just to cope with the, the sheer volume of sort of passenger numbers going through. But each of these doorways was for cargo handling. So vehicles would come in, they back up, get loaded up, um, and then off they go. Airmail was a huge thing, um, you know, in the interwar period, even post, post-Second World War, actually. Um, and so there was an awful lot of airmail going through here. 65% of all the airmail um, went through Croydon. So 84% of all the cargo... Um, and even in the 1930s, as you're starting to get more airports coming online, um, sort of little regional airports are starting to, to spring up. Croydon's still handling a 49% of all the passengers in the UK. But were there specific cargo airlines, or did the cargo go on passenger flights? No, they generally went on passenger flights yeah. there. I think you're starting to get more of a change of that post-Second World yeah. War. So, sort of pre-Second World War, in the interwar period... Um, you know, there was only one airline. It was yeah. Imperial Airways. They had the monopoly, um, and then that got started to get broken up in the 1930s, sort of mid 1930s. That's where you get British Airways Limited come along, um, and they sort of really they picked up the European routes, and Imperial really had the monopoly on the, on the long haul stuff. So there was no one else doing that. And even with the regional stuff, you started to get independents, uh, independent airlines, um, but they're very much doing sort of near continent stuff, really. So in that. 1920s when this yeah. started yeah. what was the kind of what number how many flights a day would you be getting uh, it, it was it wasn't money when the airfield first opened you get about a dozen um, but those numbers went up you know until you're getting you know, sort of 40 50 60 70 80 a day i mean probably the best way to sort of summarize it so the airfield for the first year of operations of commercial operations you had about six and a half thousand passengers come through the second year 1921 ten and a half thousand this term will open in 1928, so 26,000 passengers. Gosh. So, but we get to 1931, you're getting 45,000 passengers. 32, you're getting 70,000 passengers. Wow. And by 1936, you're getting 120,000 passengers. So from 1931 to 36, you've almost tripled your passenger numbers. Um, how, um, how many airlines, apart from Imperial, were, were operating? Presumably foreign airlines. <laughs> yeah, to come you know, in this as well. is it. You know, this, this was Britain's. Gateway Airport. Um, you know, this this is the one initially that only had the approval to do that. So you had you had this as the primary. The diversion airfield was Lim on the coast, uh, and this was it in the 1920s. 1930s, a few more came along uh, online, but but not many. But the, air, the airlines you're getting, you're getting all the national carriers. So you're going to you were getting Air Union, which is now Air France. You get Sabina, which is now Air Belgium. And you're getting Lufthansa, which is. Lufthansa. <laughs> uh, um, but you're, you're, so you're getting all, all the European airlines coming in here. So this was, this was the, the main destination. Later in the 1930s, they, they were doing the odd service to other airports um, as they were getting developed. But really, those, those frequencies were really, really small. And anything that you, we consider long haul was all out of Croydon. So if you wanted to go somewhere intercontinental, it was all out of Croydon. So, you know, they, they very, Imperial very much had the monopoly on that. Flying boats were still going at that stage? Flying boats started coming in the mid-1930s. Right. So, okay. And that was, um, originally that was down in Poole. Yeah. Um, so, um, and I think there was also some going out Southampton. Not my area of expertise, because no, no. it's not a Croydon. So um, <laughs> I don't know much on that one. So they did have flying boats. But, yeah, yeah they were developing it. It was, um, I, I think if we think about sort of air travel at the time, when, when it started... 1919 the thoughts were that um aircraft would probably do europe short haul stuff what we call short haul now and airships would do the long range stuff because they had the range and do it to do it 
as it was, aircraft developed sufficiently enough that long-haul travel became possible, but not in the way we do it today. It was done like short-haul. It was lots of short hops. You know, if you've got an HP-42, which was the mainstay of the Imperial Airways fleet doing 90 miles an hour, it took you a long time to get down to... You know, South Africa. Yeah. Well, I saw, uh, oh, yeah, it's the, the, the Brisbane flight route yeah. Yeah. Was, was one of the earlier. Was much yeah. earlier than I expected to be. Yeah, yeah. How long did it take to get to Brisbane? Uh, that's uh, <laughs> well, initially that was fourteen days. Right, yeah. So, however, to put that into context, um, that was almost uh, that was over, saving over half the time you could do it the other way, which was. Boat and train. Yeah. It was 40, 40 days otherwise. Yeah. So, really, that revenue revolutionised communication. Yeah. And that was the main thing with it. Is yeah. that even though it was, by today's standards, a long time, it was a lot, lot quicker than the alternative. And building the infrastructure along those routes must have been a colossal. It was, it was huge. I mean, even this, you know, air travel is, is completely new. You're starting from scratch. It's like, what, what does air travel look like? What infrastructure do you need? What do we need to make this all work? Because um, it's not just a terminal. It's all those support services as well. So we touch on radio communications yeah. and radio navigation and how that started. Um, but a lot of these places as well were really um, undeveloped. You know, they were having to find suitable landing grounds yeah. and then sort of build a mini airport ar- around it. And, and Imperial Airways had a series of really of outstations. Some places they were actually building infrastructure there so they could service their operations. So you would get, um, you know, engineering facilities, you would get... Um, sort of mini, almost mini hotels. You can put your passengers up overnight and your staff as well. Um, you have petrol supplies um, and everything you need really to keep keep your service going. And, and some of the airfields started just like that. Imperial Airways said, "Right, we need a we need a landing ground here. We need some facilities." So they'd, they'd actually build it. So and was this this was just a service for the very wealthy? Would you say uh, it was wealthy business people and government staff? So you know, at the time, you know, Britain's got this sort of huge amount of overseas interest, and this is one of the big pushes um, behind Imperial Airways. They're trying to connect all their overseas interests at the time, yeah. So they're trying to keep that all connected and communicating with that as well. And this was a a quicker way of doing that. So that's that's how it worked. So, And on these uh, these series of hops on the longer haul, would would one aircraft do the first hop and then return, or would it be the same aircraft? Yeah, they generally carry on. Yeah, that's right. They they sort of generally carry on. They might change aircraft halfway down the route. Um, And you did did get some really convoluted routes as well. So, for example... um, you know, going going off to sort of the, the the Near East, you'd go through Europe. You couldn't fly over Italy, so you go by train. You then get a flying boat. Uh, you know, then go down to you know Cairo, and then you pick up another aircraft. But you get so you get these multiple changes. So it was quite, quite exciting. Quite, yeah, it was yeah. quite an adventure. It was quite an adventure. Even in the fifty sixties, my mother was a um, cabin crew, or an air hostess they were called. And they used to do, I think, Alexandria or something. It used to yep. take four days then. Yeah. Because um, it was all done in short hops. There were no real long-haul dedicated aircraft yeah. that really worked until the sort of 60s. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we touched on flying boats. Even when the flying boats came in, they still didn't really quite have the range. You know, this is why they'd stop off at the Azores or Bermuda, and that's why they were... What boat- a hardship. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> How dreadful, yeah. Um, which is why they were boats, really, that flew, because it's like, what's the way around the problem? This is it. Trying to go transatlantic was really difficult. Yeah. You know, it's a long, long way, especially when you're going westbound, you're against the wind. So it's quite difficult. Um, I'm just going to sort of... Mm. Um, 
just talk about the sort of back of the building um, as we're here. Um, so this corner here, we can see we've got a change in styling on the ground floor just with these two columns here. You've got these two sort of skinny columns and then the columns um, just above the fourth, first floor level are actually, um, you know, replicate the, the rest of the building. So the reason that's like that is in the Second World War, this became part of um, uh, RAF Fighter Command, 11 Group. So this was a Battle of Britain airfield. Uh, on the 15th of August 1940, the airfield was heavily, heavily bombed. Um, and that corner of the building actually got bombed out, so it all got blown out. So when they're actually rebuilding it, of course, they haven't really got the time or the blocks to, to build it in exactly the same styling, so they just needed really to close the building up. So that's why you've got these skinny columns there. Um, and really, that's a really a reminder of what, what happened at that time. When it was about was it called RAF Croydon? It was called RAF Croydon. So yeah. a couple of airfields joined together. Original. So when it originally started, right back in World War One, it was two airfields. So you had um, Royal Flying Corps Station Bennington, and you also had um, the airfield with the National Aircraft Factory as well. Um, and they amalgamated those two together. So, and they used various different sides uh, of, of the airfield. I mean, the, the main landing ground really was just to the, the west of Plough Lane. It used to go straight through the airfield, um, which they eventually closed off. So it was two airfields. One, one was the, the aircraft factory testing aircraft, and the other one was what the RFC stroke RAF used. And then post World One, that was all all came together. They made it one big airfield, um, generally known as. Um, RAF, RFC Bennington but it was also known as RAF Croydon as well at the time so there's, there's another chart we found in 1919 so it got all, called all sorts of things so, um, <laughs> Wadden as well Wadden, yeah Wadden absolutely yeah well, yeah because yeah. it is in Wadden yeah. so it was called that um, but we're around the back now um, so just talk about this very very briefly the base of the control tower Oh, this is stunning. This is yeah. so exciting. We're looking up. At this the is the here. world's oldest uh, surviving air traffic control tower. So it's not the first one built. The first one built uh, was built here at Croydon in 1920, which is a timber structure. Uh, I mean, it was a very simple structure. It was re- really, it was a shed on stilts. So that was the first control tower. That was 1920. But this was this became operational in 1928. So the actual tower itself is 50 foot high and with the radio mast as well, that gives it another 30 feet. So it's over, it's over 80 feet in um, total in height, four storeys. Uh, and each floor served a particular task. So on the ground floor, you would have had the traffic hands uh, and your customs officials. Uh, the first floor is where the Met Office staff were as well. So the Met Office came under the Air Ministry. The Air Ministry ran the operation so they they regulated aviation but they also operated the airport as well um, and then just below the balcony were the sleeping quarters for the staff here it's 24 7 operation so that's where the radio officers sleep the um, the catos the civil aviation traffic officers which are your fledgling air traffic controllers uh, and your met office staff as well and then at the top that's where the catos the air traffic officers worked and the radio officers sort of handling all the traffic at the time you say twenty-four operation. You yeah. weren't getting flights during the night. You, you did. You did get some, not not many, but they they would have a they would have a watch here uh, so, um, on duty because sometimes stuff gets delayed. Uh, they also have you know early morning flights going out as well. So um, it wasn't quite twenty-four-seven as maybe some some airports are, but uh, there would always be somebody here on duty as well. Wow. 
That's quite so, brave. Yeah, it is. In those and they, days. And they didn't, have, didn't have many staff as well, so they're, they're working quite long shifts as well, which is why they had sleeping facilities, but it's all catered for. And where we're standing now... Would have been the apron. This would have I mean, been the apron. Exciting. Just, I'm going to yeah. close my eyes so, and imagine yeah, HB42 yeah. This is it. just parked <laughs> to my right. <laughs> Describe what's here now. <laughs> no, no, let's not. Let's not. <laughs> I'm taking pictures so we can, we can put some pictures to accompany the episode when it goes out. So you can actually imagine what we're seeing or what we might have seen. We are surrounded by... We're in a car park with some industrial buildings, one of which I can't believe ever got planning permission to ever be. <laughs> it's probably the ugliest building I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yes. It was an industrial unit and they've converted it to living accommodation yeah, now. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'd really want to live there personally. But I mean, it's absolutely awful. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, it's not very salubrious now, but back in the day, this was magnificent. Facing, we had a, facing this way, facing yeah, the, absolutely. the airport building, yeah. it's absolutely stunning. Yeah, so the aircraft would come in um, from, from the north, so from our left as we're standing here looking at the tower, they'd sort of park up here. Um, passengers would get off uh, and they're going through the arrivals gate there um, and then the aircraft would shuffle along uh, get reloaded up and the passengers would come out the departure gate there so we've got the world's first arrivals and departures gate so and they're separated out this is this is quite an important thing with this this building is those processes have been separated out um, and you know we can see we get in that flow of people and traffic going through the building so this was really a big step and of course all airports are built like this now now they just do it on two levels you tend to have an arrivals level and a departure level this is the first time you're getting that concept uh, put into a building also an air traffic control tower as well you know purpose-built very much dedicated supporting air, air transport operations your cargo operations are all catered for your mail's catered for bullion would come in here as well you'd have you know gold bullion here as well was there, was there any sense of security or separation of uh, arrivals and departures, or was yeah, it you, a melee? Of, well, uh, whoever you, you, did, you did have it. You did. You did. You did have a customs hall that people would go through, and they they'd be uh, they go through customs, they go through special branch and special branch. Uh, you also have Port Health as well here as well. Um, so you get all all the stuff that you would get now was all starting all starting to come together and it's the first time you've got a building where that's all working really seamlessly i mean the, the process was really quite quite quick you could you could turn up here and get processed in about 10 minutes and be on the airplane oh you know imagine yeah, imagine <laughs> yes what a dream so it's not like it is nowadays but there again <laughs> passenger volumes are so much lower so you know that was easy to do i mean you did have a huge increase in passenger numbers you know when we said like i'm saying you know, the first year of operation twenty-six thousand people by 1936 120,000 people the outbreak of the second world war you got two hundred thousand people so that's a massive massive increase it's the biggest growth in air travel we've ever seen really it was sort of that that period in the 1930s. Yeah, well, it all worked really, really well, yeah. and that's why we saw the extension to the world. That first <coughs> extension yeah. um, was the um, you're just getting that huge, huge growth in traffic. And the building was designed as well to be extended, you know, yeah. it's still framed, and they put in all the um, sort of design features you need to be able to sort of just add on to, to, it, to, add on to yeah. it as well. So, they really were thinking ahead. So, it's a great, great bit designed by the air ministry. So would you like to go inside where it's warmer? It's quite cold. Today, <laughs> yes, isn't it? it's quite cold. Yes.
So we're now in the booking hall. So this is where people would arrive when they started their journey um, to wherever they were going in the world. Um, 1928 when this opened so this was the world's biggest airport so we've never seen anything like this at the time so a, a dedicated airport that's been planned out and provisions been put in to handle passengers and cargo and bullion uh, and airmail as well and you can almost hear that now can't you it's yeah, almost it's, you can it's almost hear those passengers checking yeah, in yeah, yeah. all those years ago <laughs> it's got that feel but we've got this you know fantastic glass dome um you know, it's a above beautiful atrium, it, 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 it is great. It is, it is fantastic. So, yeah. but this is, you know, architecturally as well. We start to see these features coming into airport design. You know, it's, it's top lit as well. So, you know, Norman Foster likes that in his airport design. He has lots of, you know, top lighting coming in, which you know, bathes it in natural light. At the time, every part of the building actually had natural light into it, even if they had to put sort of skylights into a few few of the sort of the, the corridor areas. Every part of the building had natural light, so it's a really nice environment to work in. Considering it was government architects, it's actually quite it's forward-thinking, isn't it? It's it is, quite, absolutely. You know, it was a really, it was a bit of imagination. Yeah, yeah, it was a really well-designed building. They did a fantastic, fantastic job doing that. Um, and it's the, it's the, um, um, it was the building and buildings and works. Yeah, the Ministry of Buildings and Works designed the building, so and put it all together. And they did come up with a fantastic design. Um, what, what you don't see now, unfortunately, but what you did have at the time is you can see we've got sort of three bays either side. Each of those bays would have been a check-in desk for each of the airlines. So you've had Imperial Airways desk. They had two because one for cargo. You've had Sabina. You've had Lufthansa. You've had Air Union. You've had KLM. Um, so they all would have had desks here. In fact, actually, I'm not sure if Sabina actually had a desk. They might have shared one. Um, but you have the airlines have had their desks here. And we've actually got some photos. If we go around, let's go around over to that corner, we can have a look at those, and you get a better idea what it looked like at the time. This originally, this in the corner, what we're seeing here, this is original. This is, would have been the post room at the time, and it's still a post room now. <laughs> so... Uh, one of the, the original features, but you can see what it looked like here. So we're standing over in that corner there, and that's the main doors there, but you can see sort of the check-in desks on the right. Um, as Jez was saying as well about the um, sort of the octagonal clock um, structure Tower. there. Yeah, that's what right. a shame yeah. they didn't keep that. Yeah, departures and sort of uh, arrivals indicator, um, and each clock face would either tell you what time your flight was departing or arriving and each airline would have a you know, one of those those faces only had eight faces so um it's quite limited in what it could do but it was you know it was an early indication it worked it worked well for a couple of years until there was too much traffic for it to cope with but we could we can see very much what it was what it was like at the and time you said earlier that the met briefing took place yeah, in absolutely. Here as well. Yeah. So, so what we got, if we look that way, now the building's been changed a bit, but um, below the sort of wings of the world there, where we went through those double doors, that's originally where the, the Met board was. And we can see a picture of that up there. We can see those people looking at it. So, so the what you've got there, it's the you've got the the southeast of England, you've got the Channel, and then you've got northern France uh, there, and then you've got all the Met codes up there. So the pilots will actually come down to do their weather briefing 
actually in the booking hall here before they go, go off and launch off. So two, two little things I've noticed, just looking on this picture behind us. Yeah. The White Star Line. So they were the Titanic. Yeah, they? absolutely. So they, yeah. The, yeah, so yeah. they were into air, air, aircraft? Well, shipping. Shipping, shipping and, yeah. So um, you had had um, LEP who do you know, lots of shipping. They're still going. Uh, they're still in service today. So they'd be doing a lot of cargo handling. So you'd have that desk here as well. So you'd get a lot of air freight coming in. And, you know, something would go on for be shipped in or, you know, to maybe places that, that Imperial Airways didn't go to. Um, just a, a way of, you know, this sort of, I suppose, integrated... <laughs> thrilling tennis duel. Oh, one, one headline. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We need to look that up. So yeah. this, was, this photo is probably taken in about 1928. <laughs> it's a cracking photo. And just talking of photos, I also noticed, although obviously short-lived, there was a mooring tower... Yes. For an R33 airship. That's it. That was very, very Used short-lived. Just once. the once. <laughs> At yeah. great cost. It cost something like £20,000 to build, which is 1920s money, which is an awful lot of money. And this, of course, is when they're looking at developing airship services. So um, they're, they're trialling it. The airship station was up at Pullum. Um, in oh, Norfolk, so that yeah. was like the airship base, yeah. and that's where they envisaged that sort of airship operations would start from. So, um, as it was, you know, the airship experiment really after the R101 disaster that really put an end to it, yeah, and it was already struggling as a program trying to design an airship of the size and scale you needed uh, was actually quite quite a difficult task. The Air, the R101 really wasn't ideal for the task. Um, Finishing it with the A380. Yeah, well, fabulous aeroplane. <laughs> Steady on. I'll have nothing nasty said about that 380. It's a beautiful aeroplane. <laughs> Only an aeroplane that its mother could love. So, um... <laughs> yeah, so this is, this, is, this is sort of very much what it was like at the time. It sort of gives you a feel of it. Um, yeah. um, One of the most fantastic things about being here is the number of photographs which are adorned every space yeah. you can just walk around yeah, we're going to put great. all these photos yeah. Jez is going around taking pictures of all the pictures <laughs> and we will stick them all on every social thing we have <laughs> there's an enormous uh, painting here of yes so the the mural this was actually commissioned by the British Airports Authority uh, for the opening of T1 at Heathrow in 1969 and it was unveiled by the Queen and Prince Philip then it's painted by uh, an artist called William Kempster who was a very successful um, sort of mural artist uh, back in the sort of 50s and 60s. He did some work for the Festival of Britain as well. So he came up with this, which was sort of the history of aviation, um, which really charts sort of air travel um, in Britain at the time. So on the left, you've got Hounslow Heath, which was very briefly Britain's airport for about six months before it moved to Croydon. So in the centre, you've got the first air traffic control tower at Croydon, the timber structure, and that's actually the second variation. It got extended upwards. And then over on the right, you've got the new terminal and the, and the, the tower there all lit up. Um, and also sort of all the aircraft that are in service with aircraft transport and travel, Hadley Page, uh, Instone and Daimler, who are eventually all amalgamated to become Imperial, which is over on the right-hand side. And we can see there... Argosy there and their HP 42 and all these characters are sort of they're the sort of major figures in aviation at the time but yeah it's a fabulous piece of art but um, when Terminal 1 was demolished 
everything was taken out and this this um went up for auction which was actually um it's the mars gallery who own it and they've loaned it to us okay. so um but it's a great great piece oh, it's, stunning, it's really it? good yeah. it's a great piece Quite really a few is. passengers coming through now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's ready for their flights. <laughs> Ten minutes and they'll be done. They'll be boarded <laughs> on their way uh, off the ch- off across the channel. VFR, of course, visual flight rules. So, <laughs> actually, it was pre-visual flight rules. It was visual navigation oh, right, with a yes. with little bit of radio position fixing to help when you're on on this side. So, there's a sort of a few more pictures here, really, that give. Give more of the history. This this is quite good. This is all takes us back in time a little bit to um, the first sort of first airport, how it started off. So originally it was a World War One airfield uh, put here to defend against Zeppelin raids. They also built a national aircraft factory, National Aircraft Factory Number One, to build uh, DH nines for the war effort. Um, and then post World War One, uh, the RAF had pulled out, and then they developed it to be. Um, London's terminal aerodrome, Britain's international airport. So we can sort of see that, sort of see that here. Really, we're starting to develop, but they're sort of repurposing all those buildings. Um, there's a road running through the centre. We spoke about the two airfields they had that were amalgamated together. So this was sort of the terminal. The flying side was that side. So you'd get on your get in your aeroplane here. They'd load it up, come across here. They'd have a level crossing to go across the road. Huh. The aircraft go across the road. It's a bit like jib. Um, oh, and yes. then they take off, take off from that side. Uh, customs facilities, corrugated huts. So very simple. First navigation aid, Croydon in big letters. So um, <laughs> simple but effective. Yeah. yeah. So you found the right place. And this is the uh, this is the second control tower, which was extended upwards. That's your first control tower there. So. Oh, yeah. That photo was taken in 1921. That became operational in 1920. And that really was really quite revolutionary at the time. Looks so, like a commentary box. Yeah, well, it, yeah, describe yeah. that control card for someone listening. Right? Yeah, it, it's on stilts, and it literally looks like a commentary box at a, at a Gymkhana yeah. or so. Or, yeah. And I think that's... Pro- not a Gymkhana, a Gymkhana. <laughs> And I think that's probably where the influence came from. So the Air, the Air Ministry commissioned it in, uh, on the 25th of February 1920. They approved the, the build of that and they, fin- they approved the finance for it in 1920. But it was a... Approved <laughs> the finance? Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Eight pounds. <laughs> it was close, close. It was 200 pounds. It was 200 pounds. It was a garden shed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they did specify it should be eight foot square. It should be 15 feet above the ground, so... <laughs> Yeah, it did. Window on each side, yeah, and it had to have a, a wind vane uh, as well that was geared down into, into the hut as well. So the uh, personnel inside, the Cato's civil aviation traffic officers, could take wind readouts as well. So, but it is the start of air traffic control and air traffic control towers. So, as, as simple as it is, and it looks quite Heath Robinson, it was a real step change at the time. It was so, the first one in the world. It was, yeah, it's very much so. Britain's very much. This is an area where Britain sort of really drove, I think, what we see as air traffic control. Uh, I think Britain was very good at administration, and this is one thing that we were very much um, looking at and put some focus on, really, was really supporting air transport operations. Um, we were also, I think, had some, some really strong advantages as well, just during the World War I, because we developed 
quite quickly radio, and we've got very advanced with that, um, and the amount of aircraft we have with radios in as well, which again at the time was quite revolutionary at the time. Um, we had a lot of expertise and experience of that. We could actually sort of then transfer those skills and that expertise across into civil air transport as well. So was this down to Peter Eckersley? Was Peter Eckersley was quite. Part in he was yes. He was um, he was with Marconi's. Marconi. A lot of their personnel were seconded uh, to the military in World War One to develop radio. So um, what we had at the time, just conscious, there's a bit of background noise here. So right, why we're not competing with that. Uh, but, yeah, the, so they were brought in to develop radio. At the time, the radio you had was spark gap transmitters, so pretty much a big spark plug, <laughs> sending Morse code. So, um, but they're trying to develop this into something you could use on an aircraft, get an aircraft-type radio. But valves were sort of very much revolutionary, so they, it, was, it was the Marconi engineers and Peter Eckersley who developed valves for radios which most people don't know what they are now but they look like a small light bulb but it's very 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 important development as well because it then meant you can develop a radio that would carry uh, radio transmissions rather than using basically big spark plugs to send a send a signal send morse code uh, and it was the valve radios that could to use uh, a method of transmitting called continuous wave which is much better for radio uh, for speech radio i mentioned Eckersley because he was a busy lad, wasn't he? He was. he was. He was one of the forerunners to the wireless at the BBC. He was the first chief engineer at yes. the BBC and yeah. actually presented programmes on air as yeah, well. At, so, and, and he was also here at Croydon. Well, he wasn't actually here at Croydon, but the technology that he developed yeah. was used here at Croydon. When they started developing you know, these radios, um, for example, uh, supporting air traffic control operations, it is a completely new type of radio you know there wasn't anything off the shelf Marconi had to build every component and it was the same with the BBC as well when they built that first transmitter they're having to build every single component to, to make it work and make it operational so the uh, radio transmitter they actually developed here at Croydon was pretty much the blueprint that they used for the BBC yeah. when the BBC started transmitting yeah, 1922 that's it yeah. but it's it's all that technology that's developed really during the First World War by Peter Eckersley and, yes. the, and the team, developing valve radios uh, and then actually developing uh, a, a radio that could be used in aircraft as well that was light enough and robust enough that they could actually uh, use that uh, to communicate with them as well. Most importantly as well, that, the fact that you could actually have a radio in aircraft meant that you could actually... Um, use something called radio direction finding as well, which is really, really important. That's when we get to the start of radio navigation. And that was a huge, that was a huge leap because that means you're not relying wholly on visual navigation. And that was a really, really big step. I mean, that was the, the thing that really um, impressed me when I first came here. So I first came here at the end of the noughties, so I went for a guided tour. Because I knew I've lived in Croydon for years, never been here, so I thought I'd do a guided tour. And, you know, it's a fantastic building, mind-blowing history. And then when I got to the tower, they're talking about radio navigation and how it started here in Croydon. That completely blew my socks off, because that, you know, that is a really major innovation for air navigation, for, for airline operations. You know, being able to use something that's not relying on the pilot being able to see the ground was a huge, huge step. And that was a really important development here. Amazing, isn't it? And the May Day was born here as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a, a chap who, again, is sort of loosely connected with Peter Eckersley, a chap called uh, Fred Stanley Mockford, who was based with 141 Squadron up at Biggin Hill. Um, and they um, actually were 
there was a radio development unit there that was originally at Brooklands but then got moved to Biggin Hill and they're developing radio and installing them in aircraft. So Stanley Mockford is installing all these radio units in, into aircraft um, and the pilots getting trained then how to use them. And I think at the end of World War One, we had about 600 aircraft fitted with radio, which I think was more than any other um, uh, military operation at the time because he's got loads of experience with radio so when civil aviation started he's come down to Hounslow Heath originally and started the radio operation there and when that's closed he's come down to Croydon and so he knows an awful lot about radio operations uh, and he yeah, he was the chap who came up with the, the Mayday distress phrase and the reason for that was there wasn't anything in speech radio equivalent to SOS so you needed something to be, to be uh, used as a phraseology that couldn't be confused with any aviation term. So he came up with that phrase, which was allegedly inspired by the French mede, which I think is my really poor French, which is <laughs> help me. Help me, yes. Yeah, that's right. So apparently that's what the French pilots are saying, the Belgian pilots. So he corrupted that into mede, the English word mede, because it doesn't sound like anything else to do with aviation. It's not a visibility, a speed or a height. Yeah. Um, so that's how he came up with that, that phrase, which we've been using ever since. So it was adopted as the international standard, I think, in 1927, 1928. So, and we've been using that ever since. So extraordinary. No, I haven't used it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is a bad day out, Defensive. isn't it, really? That is a, that is a bad day <laughs> I out. See, I could see the look in your eye before you asked the question. <laughs> it's already too late, isn't it? <laughs> yes. uh, uh, we've got a few more. A few more pictures here. It's talking about air traffic control. So Croydon very much was sort of the birth of, uh, birthplace of air traffic control. A lot of the systems and operations we have now were, were developed here. And one of, the, one of the major reasons were this was, you know, this is Britain's biggest airport, busiest airport. It's one of the world's busiest airports. So getting all this operational experience and developing these new techniques. So we've got a chap here called uh, Jimmy Jeffs. He was the first air traffic controller as such. Civil aviation. He had license number one, I believe. He didn't have license number one. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Which we've got. A, we've actually got up in the towers. Oh, so we can see that. So that's that's it. Oh. It was actually they didn't actually start issuing licenses <laughs> until 1953, I think it was. So this was backdated. So <laughs> to, to acknowledge his achievement, but he was much decorated as well. But um, he during the Second World War, he did he did a lot with air traffic control to develop the North Atlantic routes mm. as well. So he was and he went out to the states, did he? Yeah, yeah. 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 So he was. Commandant Heathrow, as well in the fifties, um, but he's very much one of that sort of pioneering team here at Croydon, developing it. We can see all those radio officers here at work, doing radio position fixing, um, talking to the aircraft. I mean, the, the way the role of work here is sort of leaping forward and handling the operation. So you've got two two groups of people in the tower. You've got the radio officers who are licensed and trained to handle the radios and the radio communications. And then you've got the CATOs, the Civil Aviation Traffic Officers, who are managing the traffic. So they're managing the operation. So um, they're getting the information from the radio officers. The radio officers pass the information on to the CATOs. CATOs will then plot it on a map. And then if they've got any other information, the CATOs will then give that information to the radio officers, who will then transmit it to the aircraft. <laughs> of course, an air traffic controller now does all that himself. But at the time, there were two very distinct roles. Except for the North Atlantic, when you still have a radio operator. In the, uh... <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yeah, HF, crackle, crackle, crackle. Uh, and it was very much like that at the time, because uh, you know, they're transmitted on medium waves, so you did get a lot of interference and static uh, as well. So uh, they didn't have VHF. 
until really it's the sort of Second World War, really, when that started coming in. How, how far out were they starting to be able to plot aircraft? Well, Croydon positions? had a really sort of super powerful transmitter. You know, this, this was... This was sort of the air traffic control centre for Britain, but it was sort of the biggest, most powerful at the time. So uh, when it went into operation, it had an operational range of 200 miles, um, but it could actually carry a lot further than that as well, especially when they get onto long range as well. They could talk to aircraft. Some aircraft that were doing transatlantic stuff, sort of some of the record-breaking flights, they were talking to them thousands of miles away. Um, but operationally, their area was 200 miles. And the radio position fixing as well, they could, they could cover all that area. And they get it accurate to uh, two nautical miles um, within two minutes. They, they usually generally got it done in about 30 seconds. So, and that's manual plotting as well. That's, that's these radio officers getting the bearings, talking to Pullum, talking to Lim, getting the cross cut, pass it over to Jimmy Jeffs to plot it on the board. <laughs> he'd mock it all up and then he'd say, right, there you go, chaps, that's where he is, pass that information back. And they get it done really fast. And there's actually some great footage of that. Um, Shell did a documentary uh, called Airport. And uh, that came out back... They did that in 1934, but it's all filmed here. So you can see all that in action, and it's really, really good. It's really worth, worth having a look at, that, actually. You'll find that on YouTube. What do you want to look at now, then? Yeah, let's go. Let's go upstairs. We'll go up to the tower. Just, just before we go up the tower, is that a pub? I'm looking yeah, yeah. inside the... It's uh... the Imperial Restaurant, Lounge okay. and Restaurant, yeah. Originally, the bar area was around this. The building's been much changed now. So originally this would have been this would have been your arrivals channel. It would have said arrivals up there and you would have come in and departures would have been over there. And then the customs hall was the corridor we've been through, but it was about four times as wide. Um, but now uh, now it's the Imperial Restaurant. And is that open now? People can come... <laughs> no, I'm not really trying to say it's closed now. Do you want a beer? No, is it open to anybody? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, this is it. I think only opens at lunchtime. Yeah. Um, so people can come in and... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah they've got their, they've got their own entrance as well off to the side as well. So, okay, amazing. Um, little plug for the Imperial Lounge and Restaurant. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Let's go to the tower. Yes, let's go into the tower and have a look there. So we're in the corridor now. Yes. The That's it. We're in this corridor. Now, originally, this would have been the customs hall, so the, the, the inspection hall, which would have been about four or five times the, the width of this. Um, um, people go through customs, special branch, port health, um, and then onto the aeroplane. We've got a whole array of photos here of you know, different, different times of the airport, different aircraft. Some of the booking hall, lots of the Argosies, which were really the mainstay of Imperial Airways fleet, sort of pre pre the HP forty two open cockpit as well. So, um, <laughs> which is uh, you know really probably the last time you started to see sort there's of. A, there's a wonderful photo actually in the main booking hall of a of a pilot raising his pennant as he arrives. <laughs> That's right. Out yeah. Of the, out of the cockpit. Do you not still do that? Yeah, the, I, the, I think we've the, stopped this. Yeah, the civil ensign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was. Yeah, very much a, you know, really a hangover from World War One. You know, pilots wanted to be in the environment, so that was how they were designed. But really, it wasn't ideal for airline pilots to be stuck out in the weather when it's raining, snowing, sleeting, etc., freezing cold. Um, so that stopped really. And it really, when you start seeing things like the HP forty two, you start to get in closed cockpits. That becomes the norm. So it should as well. Yeah. So the the photo we can see here in the corner. Uh, it goes right back to when this was a uh, Royal Air Force training station back in 1919. 
and a chap in the centre. You may recognise him yeah, with, some, yeah, <laughs> with some familiar features. So that's actually Prince Albert, Duke of York. So that was the Queen's, Queen's father. He was actually the first member of the royal family to learn to fly. And he did his training here, along with his, his elder brother as well, was the Prince of Wales. Um, obviously later became King Edward VIII. So this is where they did their flying training. Churchill also did some flying lessons here as well. But he wasn't very good at it. He had quite a nasty accident. But fortunately he survived. And after that one he decided that flying, he wasn't very good at it. He was just going to be a passenger. But he definitely didn't have an aptitude for it. So I think it was fortunately his instructor lessened the impact as he stalled him from about 80 feet. So, um, yeah, I think he got away just being very, very badly bruised. So... um, but it could have been could have been interesting. Mm. Might have been interesting for our history as well. Yeah. But hey, <laughs> pictures here of Amy Johnson. Oh. Um, Amy, wonderful Amy, very successful aviator. She's made her record-breaking flight here, um, nineteen thirty. Left here on the fifth of May, trying to beat Bert Hinkler's record. She didn't quite beat the record, but she did set up the world's um, record-breaking flight time for solo flight and a woman as well yeah. at the time which was a big thing as well women started really getting into aviation because i think it was a field that they could quite clearly compete with men so and i think it was a big push i think you're starting to get you know really i think the start of sort of the women's equality movement really is really start yeah. making big strides in the 30s yeah. you know they've just got the full franchise in 1928 um, and we're seeing a lot of women pilots doing some some great yeah. great stuff in aviation, some incredible records. I mean, this was a real a real feat as well. You look at what what she's doing at the time. You know, she's flying halfway around the world. There's not loads of airports and loads of support. Some of the places she's landing literally is a clearing in the jungle with some petrol cans that she has to find. She hasn't got proper aviation charts. She's aviating by bits of Atlas. Um, she's a really inexperienced pilot yeah. as well. You know, she's just really got a private pilot's license. Yeah. A few fl- dodgy landings on the way, weren't yeah, there? Yeah, there were a few dodgy landings as well. But, I mean, she's flying in really difficult conditions. You yeah. know, she's flying in desert, hot, high conditions, flying through monsoon, over mountain, over big stretches of water. So it was a, a really quite an amazing feat. I mean, just a, a feat of physical endurance as well to do it in that time. I mean, she was absolutely exhausted when she got there. Yeah. Um, um, you know, she's flying a, um, a gyp, um, gypsy moth, gypsy moth yeah. um, there, but there's, there's, you, you can't even trim them out. So yeah. you're flying it all the time, all the time. You know, these long flights, you're doing eight, nine, ten hours a day, day after day. Um, you know, she, she got caught in a storm in the desert as well, a sandstorm, all sorts of stuff she had to overcome. So to actually get there was yeah. quite it was quite an achievement we interviewed amanda harrison who oh. uh, started to emulate to, to yes. retrace those routes yes. but in her tiger moth she said exactly what you're saying you cannot take your hand off the controls no. for a moment yes. uh yeah you are yeah, flying that thing it. every second of the way yeah you? that's yeah. it and that's really demanding yeah. and you know doing that day after day after day so <laughs> <laughs> Any comment so, you'd like to make on that one, Ian? Well, I fly an Airbus. So. <laughs> yes, a big one. Yeah, big the one. A big fat one. Much, much better. So, and there, there was a, what a handful of people to to sort of wave her off, but thousands gathered. Yeah, at it, it, was, it, was, it was it was extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, she was unknown, you know, and she was um, no one really had heard of Amy Johnson. Um, she was actually really quite quite keen and enthusiastic she'd been working up at um you know an airfield you know just supporting all the air, airport operations there but you know no one had really heard of her was so that the one near mill hill 
I can't remember what it's called. I can't remember what it is for the life of me yeah. either as well. De Havilland used it yes. as well. Um, yes. it no. Will, no, it will come to me. It's closed now. Um, yeah. It will come to me. We'll come back to that. Yeah. We'll, we'll yeah. edit that in later. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Stag Lane. Stag Lane. That's it. Stag Lane. Brilliant. Hey. <laughs> yeah, so the, she was... The only problem is, well, it's going to sound like I've edited it. <laughs> <laughs> Just be a pause. Yeah. That's really bad edit. We're all having senior moments there. So, uh, yeah, so there was, there was literally just a handful of people to see her off, not thinking she was going to do it. But very, very quickly, um, she was starting to beat Bert Hinkler's record very early on, so it was looking really, really good. She was making yeah. fantastic time. Well, I think um, she was beating the record as far as Karachi, was Yeah, that's she? right, she was. So she set up a new yeah. record flight time down to Karachi. But then she started, you know, she had a few instruments, so she had a couple of... Um, Difficult landings, damaged the aircraft, um, had to get the aircraft repaired. I mean, she had two incidents like that. So, But amazing, she still got it done and she still managed to finish, which uh, I think is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. So, um, And also just flying conditions she, she wouldn't have really known about as well. You know, Karachi, you know, it's 40 degrees at altitude as well. So her, there's her thinking she's doing you know, 60 miles an hour when really she's probably doing about 75 miles an hour, which is... You know, coming in a lot, lot faster to land. Of course, there's no brakes either, no. as well. So it's not surprising yeah. she had difficulty slowing down once she did <laughs> did start the rollout. But yes, coming back to sort of when she came back as well. She came back in in the August on an Imperial Airways flight. There was there was thousands and thousands of people here. There's about a hundred thousand hundred thousand people at the airfield, and there's a cavalcade as well going up to the Groner House Hotel up in London, twelve mile route. That was just lined, I think, with about a million people as well. They put on all these special trains and buses, and sort of South London came to a standstill. She really was a massive, massive celebrity after that. It really, really was uh, quite, quite extraordinary. But this was, you know, in the thirties, twenties, and thirties. Um, you know, this really was all such a new big thing you know the fact that people were flying great distances and actually achieving that was uh, you know a real phenomenon at the time probably a bit like the space program in the 60s the way that captured the public's yeah. imagination yeah. this was the equivalent of that in the 1920s and 1930s no more questions lovely good not at the moment sir <laughs> someone just walked through one of these double doors wearing one of those uh hats that covers your ears because it's very cold it looked just like a flying helmet from a <laughs> I think I'm beginning to see ghosts here. I really am. Oh, maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> These displays are floor to ceiling on the, the stairway up to the top of the control tower. And they yeah. look amazing. Yeah, they're good. They're, we've, we've had them in uh, just, just a few months ago, actually. Yeah. Um, so they've gone in. So these were sort of a few timetables um, that we used. Some of the, the adverts, yeah, the Imperial so the Airways adverts. Adverts. We sort of blown those up um, to sort of show you how it, was, how it was all operating. But you can see here, really, this is how you went anyway. It was, it was, oh it was very much like a, almost like getting on a bus. The graphic there of the England to Egypt to India route. And it actually highlights what's amazing about each airport, including Baghdad, Jewel of the East, yeah. and Basra, which some Brits will be very familiar with, Sinbad's home port, and for dates, oil and carpets, which... Uh... <laughs> Still to this day. 
But yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a fantastic de- description um, of how air travel was at the time. It's just very very different. So the the aircraft just didn't have the range or the speed to really do everything in one hop. Um, you know, initially you've got these Hanley Page HP forty twos doing hundred miles an hour, ninety miles an hour. As the decade, as the thirties developed, aircraft got a little bit quicker and a little bit faster. But you're still only getting speeds of about two hundred and fifty miles an hour. So. Um, everything's happening a little bit quicker, but not quite as quick as now. Yeah. It's like Cape Town there, for example, London to Cape Town. Take you 12 days, yeah. which is, um, yeah. you know, it's ten and a half hours now, so a little bit quicker. <laughs> yeah. so. But at the time, revolutionary, because um, the, the, your alternative was boat and train, which would take you weeks. I mean, um, Africa, um, um, down to Australia. Uh, Australia would be 40 days by, by boat. But flying, you could do it in 14 days, which is amazing at the time, quite extraordinary. And only 10 minutes to get through security. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, <laughs> oh, don't you dream of that? <laughs> Doesn't everyone dream of that? Um, big pictorial there of like the um, air traffic control tower and how that worked as well. So when it was opened, so this, this got a lot of press at the time in various magazines. It was syndicated around the world. Um, so we're talking about how the how the tower work, different parts of the operation. And we're coming up to the top of the tower now. Yes, we're going up to um, just the, the basic control tower where we've got a museum now. We've got that over two floors. Okay. So originally, what we're seeing now, so that, that section there, that was actually the roof. Um, but the building got extended. And in the 90s, they put sort of an, another extension on just coming back here. Um, and we've got a fabulous model of the HP 42, yeah. which was, at the time from Imperial Airways, it's all transformed their operation. So, and it was a real luxury airliner. Last of the biplane airliners, but it was, it was immense. The wingspan is 130 feet. So it is uh, you know, bigger than a 757. Two cooperation in closed cockpit. There was two variants of it. Uh, Imperial Airways called it HP 42. E or W, so E was for the eastern routes, so like the long haul stuff, and the W was for western routes, which was for for Europe. And the way the sort of the, the interior was configured was um, very slightly different. So for the the E operation, only have 24 passengers and a bigger cargo area for carrying your mail and your uh, and other goods. And then for the um, sort of the Western European operation that carry 38 passengers. Yeah, grass, desert, yeah, that, that was it. No, I mean, really, in the 30s, 20s, there weren't tarmac runways, so there just weren't. I mean, I, th- I think in the UK, for example, pre-Second World War, in the whole of the UK, there might have been nine hard runways. Post-Second World War, we had about 650. So there was, the Second World War was a mass change in airport designs and operations. But this, for at the time... Um, this is what they were designed for. To give you an idea of the size of those wheels, they're about uh, about five foot six. So it's big, it's a big aeroplane. And they're tail draggers as well. They cruise at a very stately 95 miles an hour. So, uh, and what was the range? Uh, the range on that, it could do about five, six hundred miles in a day. So it would... Um, so it would only fly for that sort of time, five, six hours. It's very luxurious inside. It's very much like a, uh, a Pullman rail car. So it's very luxurious uh, and it was all business class, so there, there wasn't, you know, it wasn't sort of club or economy. 
or business and economy. And a galley, a sort of a small. Yeah, the galley was in the in the centre. It was it was it was a really well thought out aeroplane actually. So the galley was in the centre where the engines were. So the stewards got noise. Mm. Yeah, so that's where the galley was. And then you have two cabins. So they're both the both the same standard. Um, but the the way it works as well with the stewards. Um, so for the European work as well. The stewards were, as well as responsible for looking after you in flight, they're also responsible for procuring your food before flight. So they'd go down to uh, Surrey Street Market in Croydon, buy it provisions, come back here and prepare it, put it all in the aircraft, ready to go. So it's very much a very personal service. Don't, don't tell some of the modern <laughs> No, uh, give them ideas. I'm thinking, what a great idea. Out of your salary, go and buy a position for your passengers. The spiral staircase in the, in the corner there, which I assume was the... That was originally the route up into the control yeah. tower, yeah. When the museum went in, they had to put another staircase yeah. in for, uh, for, for people, for health and safety, really, because yeah. obviously lots of people are going to struggle with a spiral staircase. Um, but, yeah, beautiful original 1928. I mean, all these railings here, this is all 1928. And underneath the carpet, you've got the original floor as well. So original fa- the original fabric of the building is still here, lots of concrete. Anyway, let's go in. So we've got these fabulous pictures on the doors. <coughs> HP42 cockpit. Wow. <laughs> now, that's, that's, that's a control column, isn't it, really? Look at that. That's a ship's wheel. That's a ship's wheel. Yeah, it's yeah, a ship's wheel, isn't it? So there's great, great big uh, rudder pedals as well with straps on it. You can strap yourself in there. <laughs> Get ready to haul it around the sky. Um, yeah, I'm not sure it was the most ergonomic design, but... Um, a fabulous aeroplane. Come on in. Oh, wow. Ooh. So this was... Wow, this wood. is exciting. Big, wood, huge wooden propellers here. Yeah, HP-42 propellers. Is it? So that would have been off the W variant, so the European variant. Uh, it's been cleaned up. Yeah, 11 foot wide they are. So they're quite big. And then the single ones are the ones they used on the E variant, the, the Eastern variant. And the one on the left here is probably... That's, that's been used, and that's a little bit of its original sort of condition, what it was like. And they were in two parts because they could pack them down there and put them, put them inside the aircraft and transport them off uh, down to wherever they were going in the Middle East or Africa, wherever they were flying. Um, and we've got this globe here as well. It tells us sort of how air travel was developed and all the, all the different routes and different stages of the routes. They slowly built that global network as they built all these outstations. And lots of these places we're going to today, it's like the London-Paris route, that route's over 100 years old, so a lot of these routes are... And that was the the first primary route out of Yeah, that was it, yeah. It was... um, In the world, that was the first... Well, I I I think it was really. It was like the first scheduled flight was 25th of August 1919, and that was London-Paris. Um, and that route just carried on. It's like when Hounslow Heath was um, curtailed after six months, they moved it to Croydon. That route just carried on. Then it started developing more routes, you know, London, Amsterdam, London, London Brussels. Um, and it started sort of developing it all on from there. So, you know, amazing, amazing history. An amazing achievement as well at the time. You know, if you look at what they're operating with, yeah. you know, what they've got to build. Um, and they're building it from scratch as well. You know, they, they, I think you know, it's just a, it's a blank canvas um, they've got to build on. But at the same time, it's like, well, what's it? What do we need? What does it look like? What does air transport look at, look like? How does it work? How do we make it work? Uh, so it's very much a work in progress. And it was developing really, really fast. You know, look at the biplane airlines you've got, how fast they developed, um, you know, and the speeds. You know, at the end of the 20s, they're doing, 
you know, 100 miles an hour. At the end of the 30s, they're doing almost 300 miles an hour. And again, of course, Second World War, jet yeah. engines, speeds again have, have doubled. Yeah. You know, so it's amazing, it's amazing how, how fast they've developed. And what would this room that we're standing in now This would have been the for? sleeping quarters okay. for the staff here. So the uh, CATOs, the civil aviation traffic officers, the radio officers and the Met officers as well. So they'd sleep here, ready, like cold springs. And why did Croydon, why did Croydon close? Uh, eventually, uh, the reason it closed is because ultimately you couldn't expand it because you, it's built up all around here. There was a, a planning promo proposal to use the playing fields on the other side, um, the other side of the Purley Way, and you'd need something of that scale really to be a viable airport and fully develop it. But it didn't, didn't get planning permission, and it was unlikely yeah. to really. Um, it just wasn't big enough, yeah. and it didn't and have the time at open. Yeah, so, so re- really, e- even when it got to the Second World War, the traffic had grown so much um, and aircraft were developing at such a rate, they were already looking at other options. Um, and Heathrow, which was originally um, Barry's uh, development airfield, I think that was used by the Eighth Army or by one of the American Air Forces in the Second World War, had big concrete runways. They'd already right. developed that. So they're already looking at it, thinking, do you know what, this is a better location. It's actually got better infrastructure there. So apart from not having any terminal, which you've probably seen the photos where they've got tents there, yeah. the actual airfield itself, for operationally for aircraft, was much, much better. Yeah. Um, and they'd already put that money in. So Croydon would need a lot of development. And it, was, it wasn't really an ideal um, location uh, as well. You know, the, the, the airfield itself was on a slope upwards. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't particularly flat. Um, and as you're saying, Gatwick, actually, that was redeveloped in 1958. This was finally closed in 1959. Yeah. It was already planning to be closed in the mid-50s, but really it was just, it didn't really fit in with, with air transport at the time. So that was it. End of an era. Yeah. Fantastic history uh, and a good starting block, but um, end of an era. Speaking of end of an era, there's a very poignant exhibit here, which is a, a bag that belonged to Amy Johnson that she carried on her... Final fated flight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is one of the very few. Th- this is one of the very few things that were recovered from that flight. Amy's, um, you know, has been well reported at the time as well. Amy's body and the aircraft were never recovered, mm. and a few things that were recovered were two of her flight bags. I think her checkbook, um, when she um, crashed into the Thames estuary. Um, so very sad. I think probably what happened was she, was she was delivering an aircraft we know for air transport auxiliary. It was really poor weather. Mm. And I, I think probably what she was trying to do was do a visual letdown because she didn't have any navigation aids. Um, but the weather was so poor, I think she probably wasn't sure where she was. Um, and she probably knew she was over the water and that was a safe place to try and let down to get below the clouds so she could make a landing. So she was well overdue and I think she was probably running out of fuel. She had, a, I think, about four and a half hours fuel and it was pretty much at the end of that. So I think she was getting to a situation where her position was quite critical that she needed to try and get down somewhere. As it was, she, uh, we think she ditched in the Thames. HMS Hazelmere saw something in the water. So they tried to attempt a rescue attempt, but they couldn't manage to. They saw somebody in the water that they retrospectively think, thought was Amy, but they didn't manage to recover her. So, And that was a very sad end for mm. you know, quite someone who had quite an extraordinary achievements and mm. success. 
Um, but that's it. One of the very, very rare artifacts to Amy Johnson's flight bag. Um, lots of record-breaking stuff there. And we're coming to the next room. So what we got in here... There's a bit more on sort of the history of Imperial Airways, um, some Battle of Britain stuff, some aircraft seats through the ages. Oh, <laughs> you see how they wicker, developed. Wicker chair. Yeah, absolutely. That's just one. Uh, and also um, stuff to do with air traffic control and Jimmy Jeff's license as well. The world's first air traffic control license. Certificate number one. They still have a yellow book today, actually. So, so he... Um, he sort of, they put the date, they, re- they dated it back to when he started, which was 22nd of February 1922. Uh, it was actually issued in 1953, I believe. But the, the chairs, we can see how they develop very, very quickly. So wicker chairs, uh, very light, very strong. And you've got this version here that only had three legs on it to save even more weight. Um, no seat belts. Um, then moving on to HP42. So when we sort of partially reconstructed that, show what it would have looked like as well so we think we the actual chair came from sort of a, a apprentices um sort of apprenticeships sort of training sort of build these chairs as well because none of the aircraft actually survive um but we've actually got one of the seats there, there it is actually incredibly light so. it looks heavy doesn't it it, it does look heavy but heavy. actually it is it is actually relatively light oh, wow. you know you can you can you yeah. can sort of feel the way the weight of that there's not much to it at all um yeah, very. That looks like a lovely sort of sofa. Doesn't yeah, it, it is. Yeah, it is well, very, very comfy. Yeah. It's um, yeah, it is. It's like a railway carriage, a more comfortable version of that. Yeah. No seatbelts yeah. initially, so yeah. none of that safety nonsense. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I are, you, are you still acquiring? Um, yeah, if stuff pieces for the for the music. Yeah, absolutely. It's if, coming to light here. Yeah, if this stuff does does come up, yeah, we 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 do like to build on it, um, especially stuff that's relevant to it. Um, so we we do get pieces do come our way every now and again, uh, as well. I think once once we sort of open the museum up, as well, it, it starts to attract attract um, interest, and you know things start coming your way. Because before this, we didn't have anywhere to display anything, so we had this organisation didn't have a museum so once you get that though people start giving you stuff which is really really good um, so we've got some really good artefacts so lots of this stuff here when we were originally open we didn't have it um, so it's good to see this you've got a lovely um, weighing scale here with the big face the big big yeah, dial absolutely. and am I right in saying they, they weighed not only the baggage but also the passengers they did well, why they don't did. they still do that I don't <laughs> understand that's eminently sensible it's isn't it yeah to fly it's yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is. So that, that was part of it. So you, you, you'd get weighed before you uh, checked in. In fact, we got a, we got a photo somewhere like check-in desk with a scale. Yeah. Somebody getting weighed. You'd get weighed. Your baggage would get weighed. You and your bags have, have a certain allowance. Um, if there's an excess baggage charge, if you're over that, for example, the awesome. rather robust, rotund there's a gentleman of the there. the world's heaviest air passenger. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Jeremy Curley. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Douglas Duff, the author who weighs 25 stone, boarding an airliner at Croydon in the 1930s. <laughs> Would that have meant that other passengers couldn't have flown because of the, I must say, just yes, uh, excessive, <laughs> excessive weight that he was bearing? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think so. I think it was more mm. of a case of we need to how much you weigh. And I'm sure, actually, if you had 25 passengers... 
like uh, the gen- Mr. Mr. Duff here, uh, that might be a bit of a problem. So, yes. um, but I don't think that ever was the case. But you've got you've got you've got a seating plan there, um, where you can see everyone's you know weights there. So you know yeah. you do a, weight, a manual weight and balance really for the aircraft, get everyone balanced up. I mean, I have had a actually in the day job where we did once have a American rugby um, American rugby American football team on board. And actually, that did become a problem because they were all really big blokes and really heavy. And we actually had to limit the seats and what they had on board as well. So wow. because the aircraft was only an ATR-42, because it was actually getting outside the weight and balance for the aircraft. So it's a bit, bit of a headache on that day trying to work wow. that out. Because yeah. normally you just work with standard weights, but these yeah. guys weren't standard weights. So um, that, was, that was quite interesting. And then with the, with the seats, you can see how quickly they developed, really, because this is um, the Armstrong Whitworth mm-hmm. Ensign which is only late 1930s, but you've gone from Wicker's chairs, mm. um, you know, so that's late 1920s, this is early 1930s, then late 1930s. You've got something that actually resembles what we yeah. see as an airline scene yeah. nowadays, you know, armrest, reclines, headrests. Just slightly bigger. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's it. You probably, yes. Yeah, that's it. Everyone would probably kill for sort of that sort of amount of space <laughs> yeah. now in an airliner, wouldn't they? Um, but you can see, you see how, it's, how it's developed, really. The 1930s was quite... Again, quite a big step change in sort of aircraft design and how they're, um, you know, what they look like, how they're operating, the technology on board. You when know, was, big when did safety really become a, an overriding concern? I think so, safety was always a factor. Um, I think it was a case of there was regulations in place to make it safe, but you learn from experience, don't you? So you start regulating when things happen, they keep occurring, think, well, what can we do to make this safer? Um, so, for example, you know, initially you would have some sort of life jacket um, when you're crossing the channel. Seatbelts weren't mandatory, but of course, as, as time goes on, there's accidents, they start looking at these things, well, how can we make it safer? That's when you start getting seatbelts. Um, but, but it was always regulated right, right from the get-go. There was always regulations, but the regulations, of course, would have to catch up with aircraft technology and what's occurring in the environment as they're building that experience. I mean, one thing with aviation as well, you know, going right right back to the very early days as well, it's very much a, an open culture and reporting accidents. Every accident was always investigated in detail so you could learn lessons from it. So what happened? How can we improve and prevent that from happening in the future? So that was all very much at the fore. And the reason we've got this airport is actually due to an air accident. So it was an accident on 24th of December, 1924. An aircraft took off from here, um, going to Paris, uh, but it crashed a minute and a half later. And some of those factors in the accident that came out were just the conditions at the airfield. So, you know, it really wasn't ideal for airline operations. It was the, the area they were using was small. It was uphill. It was boggy at the time. Um, because it was near the ridge as well. You get turbulence off the ridge as well, which quite affected the, the performance of the aircraft at the time. So, so they looked, looked at that and said, well, how can we make this safer? So they looked at, you know, we can enlarge the airfield, we can move the flying area, we can make the whole thing bigger, and we can build a better airfield. So that was very much part of it. Um, and that, that drove what we have here, which is a, a much better place to operate from. Great. So... That's all very serious, isn't it? Anyway, no, it's, so, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So we go around, um, yeah, Wiswill. You know, that's it. So yeah. there'll be a lot of that going. Oh, a lot of lot. Oh, yeah, well, they, did, they used to take oh, yeah, yeah, star shots and star stuff shots. like that. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> so I mean, when you get down to, you know, 
um, sort of deepest Africa. Yeah. Whilst we had radio support in you know here in here in London, um, here in the UK and over Europe, that's got more and more sporadic as you started getting over, you know, to towards the Middle East um, and Africa as well. But they did have radio stations, but you didn't get the level of support. So a lot of the time it was. Really, they were on their own. So any way they could navigate by, they could. Of course, navigating over the desert was difficult. And one of the first things they did when they were establishing the routes um, down through Cairo in the Middle East, down through um, Basra and Baghdad, actually ploughed a furrow in the desert so the aircraft would actually have something to follow it because it's visual nav, yeah. So that was their navigation aid. There was this furrow that the RAF had ploughed about 500 miles so they could follow that. It is. So it's, it's that rudimentary at the time. So when we talk about, for example, radio position fixing here, that's a major, major step change. That really is. You know, that's really improving your navigation capability. It's making the operations safer, more accurate. Also means that you've got more chance that your service is actually going to get to the destination as well, rather than sort of the weather actually preventing you from doing that. We're going to go up to the tower now. So this staircase was put in because... People couldn't go up the spiral stairs. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so this is this is it for the museum. That's so. amazing. So is that accessible to? Yeah, well, this is it. So it makes it more accessible to people because the um, spiral staircase, um, although it looks fabulous, it's quite narrow and quite steep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and yeah. I think it's probably induced a few accidents. Yeah. Oh wow, the light already. So here we are. So this is this is it. This is oh, amazing. Uh, sort of cutting edge. Air traffic control, 1928. This is the world's biggest, most advanced air traffic control centre on the planet in what was the world's biggest airport term and the world's biggest airport. So it's been partially recreated to represent what it was like at the time. Um, So you can see how air traffic controllers went about the operation. Um, I mean, facing this way, this would have been a a fantastic vista across the airfield. You know, you had a 270-degree view. Um, when we were outside as well, we saw some clocks in the balconies. Yeah. And they were actually all linked in together uh, to that clock there, that clock in, in the corner. So that was part of the master clock system. So, and even though it's 1928 technology, it's accurate to a few thousandths of a second a month. So pilots would set, you know, set their watches and the clocks of aircraft to the time outside. Uh, and they're using that for navigation. I love the way the windows have got the... Uh... Yeah, it's great. It's great. It was a great, great design. So when the museum uh, was put in, it was you know they've got, they've got a special uh, museum specialist design company in to, yeah. to put it all together, uh, and we've added to things over the years. So basically, it looks like you're looking out on the airfield. In yeah, and this is this is what you were seeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of that is sort of late late fifties. So sort of, you would have seen sort of some of the hangars over there. That's um, that way yeah. would have been the airfield, um, and then we got lots of other. Bits and pieces around as well, and a few installations for kids. Just to see if this door's open. Yes, it is. Great. So this is the radio room. So this is the radio room. So this is where the radio officers would have worked, and originally this partition would have gone all the way across. So the radio officers here, people like Fred Mockford. Um, would have been, they would have been communicating with the aircraft using radio telephony uh, and also Morse code because uh, that was still very much, very much in use um, using a goniometer, which they've got there to get uh, a, a position. 
get a bearing on the aircraft as it makes the transmission. And then that information, they'd get the information as well. So Lim would also pick that up, that information up, which is out on the Kent coast, uh, and also Pullum, the airfish, air, airship station. They'd bring that all together and pass that information over to uh, the CATOs, the Civil Aviation Traffic Officers, who would plot it um, on a chart over there. They'd actually use that hatch there and pass the information <laughs> out. And they got all that done in about 30 seconds. It's amazing. amazing. It's super efficient. Yeah. And actually, you can see that in the corner. That, this, is, this is a replica of the board that Jimmy Jess would have used. So you've got the, the three stations in use. Amazing. So you've right. got Croydon there, you've got Lim, you've got Pullum. Um, and they'd pick up the radio bearings, um, and it's sort of tri- simple radio triangulation, which is what your GPS is based on. You know, now we all walk around with GPSs on our phone and think yeah. nothing of it. It's sat nav, off we go. Yeah. Um, but this is really the bare bones of, of what, what that's all about, how that works. Um, so that was one of, the, one of the main things they could do. Um, and then we got a chart there, what it, what it would have been like, you know, all different airliners. Um, each airline would have had a, a flag for it and again they're getting manually moved by the the Cato's to represent where the aircraft are on the, on their uh, position reports the general flow direction yeah they, they did have they did have sort of designated routes that they try and stick to yeah. um, I mean you've got the you've got the railway line that yeah. was built oh, 120 150 years ago that goes from Red Hill right down to Ashford it's a straight line yeah. so that was one of the routes and you go across the channel uh, and they they generally trying to have a sort of a southbound flow and a northbound flow so that when the weather was poor uh, they're trying to keep the traffic away from each other and um, there's an accident in 1922 um, over northern France uh, near Picardy uh, we had the sort of first aerial co- collision of sort of commercial airliners and from that they just tried to again improve things a little bit more there was already some air routes in place in the UK yeah. but they hadn't really got quite got that far in developing those further um, and you had the general rule of, you know, altitude, yeah, altitudes, yeah, and keep the line feature on your left. Yeah. That was the original, one of the original rules that was already there when the um, legislation first went in. But they just developed that a little bit further and made that a general, a general rule, um, and try and develop a few more air routes as well to avoid, mm-hmm. avoid matters like that. So it was there was very much a system with it, yeah. um, and it was sort of designated. Um, and it was quite. You know, I, I think you know. You look at sort of the regulations in place and they're developing it. It was quite, yeah. you know, they were they were on it. Yeah. You know, they were putting this system in place. It wasn't just a free for all. You know, go off and do your own thing. It was very much a case of they had these procedures, systems, um, and operations in place to make it as, as safe as possible and as effective as, as possible. And after the war, or the Second World War, yeah, um, obviously radar started. Yeah, it was. Um, fitted with radar? No, it wasn't. no, it wasn't. That. I mean, it, again, this is one of these things. You sort of, somebody the feels always getting things like ILSs, yeah. um, and they're starting to, you know, Heathrow got radar, but this, yeah. this didn't have radar. It was pretty much all procedural right. here, yeah. so it was quite basic. But what always, was, uh, was the writing on the wall for the end of I, I think, some time yeah, I think, re- I think it, it was really, yeah. Once, once Heathrow came into operation. Um, and this was then downgraded to sort of the second airport. Yeah. Um, and I th- they'd already looked at, you know, what you could do with it, and yeah. it was limited. So I think really it was. It was. I don't think that decision was made until the early 50s, but, but it, was, it really didn't have much of a future. You could just see the way, the way air travel was going. 
way, you know, the, the way aircraft were developing. Yeah. You know, they were getting bigger, heavier, and faster, and you needed a big space for that, and you yeah. didn't have that here. You just didn't have it here. But so. as I think we may have alluded to earlier, had Croyd not closed, this building wouldn't be here anymore. Probably. Absolutely, yeah. It, I mean, it, it would I, have I been destroyed. It, 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 it is. It, it is doubly sore because you look at all these other airfields that are around, and it's quite, it's quite rare. If they've been around for a long time, you very rarely see any of the original buildings because yeah. they get bulldozed and get I think redeveloped. Dublin's got quite a nice sort of yeah, Art Deco that's terminal. Right. Yeah, that's there's, a, there's a few around. I mean, Shoreham. For example, <laughs> Le Bourget itself. Le Bourget was originally the sort of the Paris airport, so they had like a mansion house in the 1920s and a few outbuildings. That was their terminal. And then they, they redeveloped that in the late 30s. Now, that's still there, but that's sort of really the generation after this. Yeah. You know, they developed again. There was such a big step change in the 30s that the buildings got bigger again. You know, this, this, this very quickly almost became too small. <laughs> so uh, in, in just, a, just a decade, you know, the, the, the passenger traffic... Ninefold increase, you know, it's it's monster. You know, we talk about increases now of like four percent a year, but you yeah. know, you were getting hundred yeah. percent, you know, every few years. You know, extraordinary. I, I flew into Zanzibar okay. three or four years ago, yeah. and if you ever want to see, uh, you know, something that just n- has never moved on beyond the forties and fifties, yeah, the terminal there was just magical. Yeah. Weighing scales, those huge ones with the clock faces that like oh, we brilliant. described yeah, before, yeah. on every check-in desk. Yeah, and it was just completely open. I mean, it was it was old, and I, someone told me very sadly that it's just recently been modernised, which I think is a, oh, shame. That's a shame. They should have kept that's that in aspect because it yeah. was absolutely stunning. And that's probably what Croydon would look like. Yes. It would have had all those all those desks, those big yeah. teak desks, yeah. and those big weighing scales that everyone you know used to have to stand. Yeah on to get weighed before they got got on the aircraft so that would have been very much part of it at the time I mean there are still one or two sort of um, 30s terminals that are still around like Shoreham that was built something like 34 or 36 that that was definitely Art Deco Um, you touched on Poirot earlier they they, they used that a few times as a substitute for Croydon so um, (laughs) so Um, but long may this building remain, and it, and we, it will. It's, it will. Yeah, it's Grade Two star listed, yeah. so it has got protection as well, which is really really good. That's really important. So yeah. um, it, it should be here for forevermore. Museum financially is in good health. Yeah, yeah good health. Yeah, it's good. You know, we're in a good, good position here. We get um, when we do open up. We only only open up on the first Sunday of every month because yeah. it takes a lot of people to make it work. Yeah. Because uh, we have to guide people through the building, but yeah, it's uh, they, they sell out. So all the slots sell out, which is yeah. really really good. So it's really popular. So how do people get onto those tours? Um, so we book via Eventbrite, uh, which we open up about two weeks before the open days, which is always on the first Sunday of every month. So they can book on there and book their slot there. You can do that. So if they look look up Croydon Airport Visitor Centre. They find it there. We also advertise it on our website and our yeah. social media. It's a brilliant well. website, by the way. Oh, good. I'm glad it's, you like it's it. It's fascinating. Yeah, good, good. I we'll have yeah. to add some more. That's just a little bit of the history. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. It's been it's a, a lot... heck of a tour. Yeah. yeah, good, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Is there anything we haven't seen? Uh, yeah, I, I think you've probably seen... I think you've seen most of it, really. Yeah. Yeah, the rest of it is really just... Take it in, join the photos, really. Yeah. So. Have you enjoyed it, Rob? Because this has been on your wish list, I think, since we <laughs> even started talking about doing a podcast. <laughs> because I'm so old, <laughs> I thought I would have been two when this closed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it has been on my wish list for, for ages because I'd seen pictures, I'd seen pictures of this control tower as we see it now. And I thought, God, it would be great to see that in 
in person and I got in touch with Ian very early on yeah. and then lockdown hit oh, didn't yeah. and then lockdown. all sorts of other things so it's yeah. taken three years to get us here today <laughs> and we only live about 15 miles away yeah. Uh, yeah. that's the way of it isn't it but it's yeah. good I'm glad, glad, no, glad you made it and I'm glad you enjoyed absolutely it absolutely fascinating and thoroughly recommended for anybody who loves classical aviation yeah We're enormously grateful to Ian Walker for his fascinating and hugely informative tour. We had a really great day. And if you're interested in visiting Croydon, just go on to historiccroydonairport.org.uk and sign up for one of their monthly open days. You'll love it. Do keep an eye open on the socials at Top Landing Gear for future podcasts and on our website toplandinggear.com where you'll find every podcast we've ever recorded. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon with our podcast from Dunsfold, home of the Hurricane and the Harrier. Until then, bye for now.